The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything that you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads, ensure that you can take on any adventure. Available H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud. Standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together. Available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone. I've been so pumped to take a couple of friends with our road bikes to some of the trails nearby, and now I can bring the entire crew, my dog, and all of our gear with that third row. Learn more about the new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. You're tuned in to Heat Check with Trista Crick. On this episode of the Heat Check... We are three days into the NBA season, and there's already a lot that we can tell. For example, the Lakers were eliminated from the playoffs after their first two games. Mathematically eliminated. Sorry to say it, it is true. The Jazz dropped a nasty surprise for the Nuggets. The Pels blew the doors off of the Barclay Center. Jaw did a ton of jaw things. We'll get into all of that, of course, with a, along with some news from around the league, because guess what? The NBA is back. So do me a favor, Nick, and drop that beat. Man, so much happened in the first three days of the season. It's going to be impossible to recap it all. So I'm going to just pop around the league a little bit. I'm going to highlight some of the things that really interested me. First and foremost, 27, 9, 5, and 2 blocks. 27 points, 9 rebounds, 5 assists, 2 blocks, and 35 minutes of action. Do you have any idea who that stat line belongs to? If you said Embiid or Jokic, hell, even Zion coming back. No one would probably blink an eye. But that, folks, is what Paolo Bancaro put up in his first game as an NBA player. Sheesh! I tried to tell y'all he was much better than everybody else. Two things happened in their opener against Detroit. One was surprising. The other was not. Unsurprising thing is that Detroit was down big. The Orlando Magic blew a huge lead. Ended up losing the game outright by four. The exact line that Vegas set. Not shocking in the least. They're going to probably do that a lot. They look good. They fade late. They don't have a lot of talent. It's going to help them through. That's the way it goes. The surprising thing, despite the heightened expectations, Paolo somehow exceeded him. I don't know. At times, the most dominant player on the floor. And that included on a team with Cade Cunningham and Jaden Ivey and Jalen Duran and all the other random lottery picks that the Orlando Magic have. He was 11 for 18 from the floor. 11 for 18? He was 10 for 15 in the paint where he pretty much did whatever the fuck he wanted. Shockingly good debut. Shocking even for me who loves some Paolo Bancaro. With 27 points, 9 rebounds, 5 assists, Bancaro became just the third number one overall pick since 1969, nice, to record 25-5-5 in his debut. The others, 
LeBron James, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He finished 11 of 18 shooting, like I said, which is the most made field goals by a rookie in his debut since, again, LeBron James in 2003. Interestingly, the day of the game, the New York Post dropped an article about Paolo's experiences as a student-athlete at Duke, and it was illuminating. This is what he said. Sometimes I'd feel like, you know, you were a zoo animal or something bro. They would be like, oh God, in class, you'd see him over there whispering about you, like just straight up staring at you. First and foremost, that sucks. Secondly, though, how many times have I tried to tell you how big Paolo Bancaro is? Like unnaturally, perfectly proportioned and 6'10", 200 and something pounds. He is the biggest human I've ever seen. Like, in terms of pound for pound, proportionally, size-wise, I look at centers sometimes and I'm like, nope, that guy's not as big as Paolo Bencaro. Nope, that guy's not as big as Paolo Bencaro. So if I had Paolo Bencaro in my class, I'd be a little bit shocked, too. I'd be like, wow, how much do you think he can bench press? How much do you think he can deadlift? Also, you would think that at a certain point, though, things would get a little bit more normal. You'd get a little bit more chill. He's sitting two rows down from you you know, five five days a week or whatever. What class? You go, what do you go to school three days a week when you're in college, two days a week? I don't know. It's been a while. But it's kind of like what Zion hinted at about his experience at Duke where you're hyped and you're famous and you're, let's be honest, very different than the, the student body. How shall I say at Duke? You know, a lot of YTs at Duke, not a lot of Zions, not a lot of Paolos, just going to be honest. So, like, truthfully, kind of hard to not feel isolated and alone because, honestly, what do you have in common with some prep school kid from Connecticut who, when you're a 6'6", 6'8", 285-pound athletic freak who's on the cover of every magazine, or in Paolo's case, 6'10", and 285. Yeah, this is why Adam Silver's like, yep, you guys can go one and done. You don't need Duke. You don't need Kentucky. You don't need to be meeting some random fraternity or sorority girl that has you making TikToks and you're pointing at the sky with random, like, words next to it in order for you to get an NIL deal. No, you can just go right to the league right now. Let's be, let's be very, very clear. Paolo's putting up 25 a night regardless of going to Duke, regardless of Coach K. No hate on Coach K. That's a truth a lot of college coaches don't really want us to know. Paolo don't need Duke. Duke needs Paolo. Moving on to Brooklyn. Uh, Brooklyn Nets. Ooh, yikes. I was hoping for more. I'll just say that. (laughs) I was hoping for a competitive match. What a rough opening night. New Orleans Pelicans, a team that started, what, 1-13, 2-21 last year? They went into Barclays, and they went to Pound Town. They just put the beat down on KD, Kyrie, and the rest of them boys, 130 to 108. Let me say that again. The New Orleans Pelicans that scraped their way into the plan, to be fair, the Brooklyn Nets did too, uh, 130 to 108. This beatdown included being out-rebounded 61 to 39, outscored 36 to 4 in second-chance points. Yeah, that'll get your ass beat. Yeah. Question, wasn't that why they brought in Ben Simmons? Defense, 
rebounding, playmaking. Turns out, not exactly going as smooth sailing as possible. It's almost like he hasn't played any basketball in a while. Steve Nash finally decided to tell us the truth in a random press conference, because Lord knows we need a little truth from Steve Nash here and there. He said Ben was rusty. No shit, Steve. He hasn't played a game since July 2021. Yes. It is currently, checks notes, October 21st, 2022. Ben's line, four points, five rebounds, five assists. This is like half of what Draymond Green averages in his career, but also what Draymond Green averaged in his first game back too. So that's something interesting to think about. He was negative 26 for the game in a game that they lost by 22. So he was actually worse than everyone else. I don't think he's going to be that bad, let's be honest. I think he will figure things out. I'm more optimistic about Ben on this team than I am with him with Joel Embiid, and we'll talk about why a little bit later, not just because of the spacing, but because it turns out they really don't care about one another whatsoever. But the loss against the Pelicans probably had more to do with the fact that the shooters are nowhere to be seen. Seth Curry, out. Joe Harris, out. Both coming back from injuries. Ben's going to have to figure his shit out, though, if they want to go anywhere. There's a little bit more Ben T, though, a little bit more Ben news. So I'll add that into here. Uh, first and foremost, he told, I think, Nick Friedel. I'm not good at remembering which reporters people talk to, but I think it was Nick Friedel. He said he cannot wait to play a game in Philly. I don't believe that whatsoever. Didn't he skip out on just being on the sidelines for the game when he went back to Philly? You would know, Nick. You're from Philly-ish. No? No. No. Pittsburgh. My bad. My bad. Scrap that. In a sit-down interview with Ben Friedel, Ben also asked, was asked whether he thought his relationship with Embiid would ever be good again. And he said, Who knows? I can't predict the future. Don't want to make my mind up and say it's not possible for anything to change. But I don't talk to Joe. We never really spoke. I don't think there was really a relationship there. Like in terms of a friendship, you can try as hard as you want to be close to somebody, be their friend, but everybody are different as people. So for me, it's never personal. I don't have any anger or hate towards him. He is who he is. I am who I am. We've got our personal lives and work is basketball. So in that moment, my goal was to win, and I've got to win with Joe. He's a great player. We just didn't get it done. Pause. What? We never really spoke? I don't talk to Joe? To me, it's very normal for you to not be best friends with your coworkers. Yeah, maybe they don't come over for a 2K night or Call of Duty, you know, maximum point, whatever they call it. Kyler Murray's always staying up to do. But... Okay, maybe you don't get grab beers after practice. Fine. Maybe you don't speak with each other when you change jobs and you go to a new organization. Totally fine. But to be cornerstones of a franchise where you may be there for the rest of your careers if the ownership group gets what they want and you not to be on speaking terms? I am not shocked that this thing didn't work out because boy, oh boy, is that telling. But maybe the most surprising thing, actually, this week that happened to Ben was Kyrie Irving passing down words of wisdom to Ben Simmons. Words that I feel are sort of like the pot calling the kettle black. Kyrie, 
when asked about his thoughts on Ben fouling out in just 23 minutes, this is what he said. As we told him in the locker room, he's a valuable piece for us, and we need him out there. And fouling out is not an option. Playing aggressive is something we want him to do, but we also want him to play smart. Let's be honest. That's an interesting take from a guy who, let's face it, is not very reliable or very available for very long stretches at a time for his entire career from Boston to now Brooklyn. Someone also just recently said that the Nets have a must-win game tonight in Game 2 against the Toronto Raptors. That, that folks, tells you Brooklyn's off to a hot start. Oh, boy. Uh, let's go over to Los Angeles where things are going swimmingly. Uh, they have two games under their belt. Uh, let's be honest. I'm reveling in being right. I am reveling in the feeling of so rightness that I don't even know what to say. This is a complete and total meltdown. A complete teardown. Following an opening beatdown, which we knew was going to happen against the Warriors on ring night, the team followed it up with another nationally televised game against the Clippers. Kawhi Leonard's return. And let me tell you, depending on who you asked, because to me it went great, it did not go well. How bad did things go? Well, I tweeted out the following after the game ended, a game where they were down by 15, came back, looked like they had won the NBA Finals because they went up by one point. Uh, they, I think Patrick Beverly stood on the scorer's table, and then they proceeded to lose by six. I tweeted, if there was a book called LeBron Teams for Dummies, page one would say, surround him with shooters. Somehow Jeannie and Rob haven't gotten the memo. Went to bed, woke up in the morning, 500 quote tweets and retweets and thousands of likes, and Rob Palinka started to trend on Twitter. The world wants him gone. Because let's face it, after game one, LeBron said, hey, we don't have any lasers. We don't have anybody out here to shoot threes. We don't have any guys that uh, are 40% career three-point shooters. Uh, their Laker guards shot one for 25 from three. That's pretty bad, including an, an incredible 0 for 11 from Russell Westbrook. And all LeBron had to say, and all Russell Westbrook had to say, is we're not a team that's constructed of great shooting. No shit. I must have forgotten that watching Beverly and Westbrook miss one open, wide open look after another, people are blaming Le GM for this, saying this is the team that Le LeBron wanted, that, hey, don't blame Rob Palinka, blame Le GM. And so I thought about this. Have you ever seen those, like, SVU episodes or, like, Law & Order where the, there's a murder and it's just too perfect. The crime is just too perfect. Like the body's there, dead with blood. The murder weapon's there with DNA and fingerprints. On the coffee table is the matching fingerprint test result of the perpetrator. In the corner of the bedroom is a, the perpetrator sitting on the table or sitting on the bed with his hands tied up and uh like a handcuffs sitting there with the note that says, I did it. And you're like, open case, closed case. That's right. So 
that's kind of what this LeBron thing is. LeBron James having a team full of non-shooters, not just good shooters versus elite shooters, like very bad shooters, all of them, led me to believe, is this something that's too clean of a case? Is there a conspiracy, a brewing? Why would LeBron James, one of the most powerful athletes in the world, sign off on a team of full of non-shooters that not just don't, aren't great shooters, they love to chuck, and they look bad doing it. He's a smart guy, one of the better IQs in the league. So why would he do that? And then a conspiracy rolled over my body. Like if the creator herself was speaking in my ear directly. Like the beam of energy people talk about when they get abducted by aliens, folks. I now know what's going on. First and foremost, we've talked about this before. LeBron James is a guy that we know loves attention. He likes the spotlight. A guy we know is never going to win the undisputed GOAT debate title. Never, based on rings alone. So he has to just basically break every individual record set on planet Earth in the NBA. He's nipping on the heels of the all-time scoring record. By who? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, another Laker. So LeBron James, in the Laker uniform, is trying to beat and break the record of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in his 20th year, who knows how long it's going to be until Father Time takes over, start breaking his body down. There's an entire national advertising campaign about this right now. LeBron James literally battling Father Time as played by Jason Momoa. It's on his mind. What's the one thing that slows that possibility down and allows maybe an injury, catastrophe from stopping this? Sharing the ball with a bunch of lasers, a bunch of scorers, a bunch of bucket getters. With a team full of non-shooters, LeBron can blissfully shoot and score 35, 45 points per night, and nobody will call him a ball hog. They'll say that he is dastardly undermanned. He is trying desperately to get this team to be competitive. No one will even say a word about him holding on to the ball like his life has depended on it. Plus, we know he won't have to go deep into the playoffs. His season ends in April. What does that mean? Well, we know playoff scoring doesn't matter for the title. But more so, like I said, his body. His body now gets April through October to rest, rejuvenate, and take whatever gin blood that Tom Brady is taking to regenerate himself for the rest of time. Good players increase the probability of playoff appearances, which only hurt his GOAT argument because he has a bunch of playoff appearances and no titles. Just take the playoff appearances out. Just take that out. He's going to put more tread on his tires. What are the point of the playoffs if LeBron James isn't going to win at all? We've cracked the code. That's got to be it. Why else would LeBron James have the worst shooting team in NBA history? What if Rob Plinka? isn't doing his job poorly, what if Rob Plinka is doing his job to perfection? Bet you haven't thought about that. Think about that while we talk about the Golden State Warriors. Good news and bad news out of Golden State. The good news, the Warriors' back-to-back championship off to a hot start. The team looked absolutely unstoppable, and that is with Clay on a minute's restriction. The bad news, Draymond Green still in the doghouse. 
He's probably making things worse right now. He's probably got a television crew recording part two of his documentary right at this very second. It's not about the punch anymore, I don't think, either. I think it's just the tone-deaf reaction to it all. The backlash to the punch and just lay down. Lay down and take, take your punishment. Atone. Don't clap back. Don't make excuses. No content. No new media. Just be quiet. Shh. Be quiet for a while. I talked about this on the last pod, so I'm not going to go through the details. It was terrible. But Zach Lowe has now reported that things are frosty as fuck in the dub nation. This is what he said. If anything, I think we may be underplaying the level of iciness and tension that they are navigating right now. And that's not to say, are they going to trade Draymond? Everything that I've heard is that they're not trading Draymond. They're just not going to. They're trying to win the championship. And we'll try to ride it out unless something drastic happens. But Draymond is going to be on the team all season. Locked on Warriors host, Cyrus Satsats. He also talked about this. He said there is zero healing right now going on between Draymond and Poole. He said, I've had sources tell me behind the scenes, Jordan Poole has not forgiven Draymond. They haven't spoken. Wow. He's not happy. I don't know how you could be. It's a horrible look. The image of it is awesome. Awful. It's borderline emasculating. Yes, Jordan Poole got knocked out. He got knocked down. Whatever you would say. I'm not sure if he was unconscious. That's only, you know, between Jordan Poole and his medical team. But I am absolutely shocked that Jordan Poole hasn't forgiven Draymond for just sunning him and punching him in the face. As for the Draymond documentary, by the way, it was entirely filmed, conceived, finished in the seven days that he was away from the team. Steve Kerr, Steve Kerr hasn't seen it. They didn't even know that it happened until, I don't know, the media asked him about it afterwards. They were like, huh? Steph Curry said he hadn't seen it. He also said this, which was kind of a warning. He's been in production with the new media stuff, and I'm sure that's not going to end, but hopefully everything is in light of trying to protect the team and make it about what we're trying to do on the floor as the priority. Let me just let you in on a little secret, Steph. It wasn't about that at all. <laughs> it wasn't. There was no protection for the team. It was protection for Draymond. Draymond was about himself. Man, there's a ton of think pieces out about this. Like, why would he do it? What was the purpose? But that's really not the question to ask. The question that we have to ask is, should we actually believe Draymond that he cares about this interaction in any way that he was appalled by his own actions was he really sorry was he spending his time away uh reflecting because if the first thing you do when you get pushed away from a team whatever it was mutual but it wasn't right so the first thing you do is you call your agent and you set up a meeting with Omaha Productions and then you call TNT to say, hey, I've got a seven-minute documentary to put on top of the documentary you guys are already making about me. Can you have a film crew come over to my house for the next seven days while I'm away until I come back for a ring night? That doesn't tell me you're, you're like thinking about being very zen. You know, It doesn't feel like you're looking inward. It feels like you're kind of trying to push your own agenda and using your relationship with TNT to push said agenda to make you look better, probably to increase the value of your contract or increase your brand or who the hell knows what. But listen, when you don't tell the Warriors ahead of time you're going to do this, oh my God, that is night, night, sleep mag. That is, that's a bad look even to me 
the sole fan on Draymond Island. We got to watch this one. I don't know how it ends. Quick update on Jay Crowder. For those who don't know, Jay, Jay Crowder is sitting out until he gets traded because the Suns aren't paying him what he's worth. They won't give him a starting role, and this has created yet another locker room issue for the Suns. And with the Aiton drama bubbling, they do not need this. No, no, no. Even if Aiton said, oh, yeah, yeah, everything's good now, we're back to normal now, I do not believe that. Normal is not a word that we can use to describe anything that's going on in Phoenix. When you have a point guard that grinds his teammates down to dust, you've got an owner who's currently selling the team because of all the isms, when you've got a big man who is the number one pick who you couldn't even muster up enough enthusiasm to offer him a contract until he was offered by another team, and now another player who's holding out, actually not even holding out. You've told him just to stay away from the team, which is fucking weird. It's fucking weird. A new article dropped yesterday from my guy, Jake Fisher, exploring how weird the whole situation has gotten. Since Phoenix decided to replace Jay in the starting lineup with Cam Johnson, we knew he was going to want to trade. They're not going to offer him $10 million a year, which is what he's getting paid now, to sit on the bench. So if Phoenix doesn't want Crowder and Crowder doesn't want to be there, what's the problem? Well, Jake says the Suns, rather famously, may spend less on resources than any rival draft scouting and evaluation. Phoenix is curiously the only team in the NBA that does not owe any outgoing picks from previous trades or have any incoming picks on the horizon. The Suns' front office appears to operate on one-year schedules where each campaign is its own trip around the Monopoly board with its own set of resources to reach go once again in prosperity. That way, you're never asset-strapped with only distant first-round draft picks to upgrade your roster. What does that mean? It means they do not care that Jay Crowder's sitting there at home on the bench and they do not care about trading him. And what's very bizarre is why the Suns have banned Crowder from being around the team, period. I don't know what that's about. He'd be very helpful at a time when Cam Johnson just goes down with a thumb injury. All of a sudden, maybe Jay Crowder can increase his value by, I don't know, starting some games. Where is he going to end up? Well, looks like he's going to land in Miami as P.J. Tucker's replacement. Actually, it's not really P.J. Tucker's replacement, is it? It's... It's... P.J. Tucker replaced him, and so he is replacing himself. Yes. Yeah, he is. So Jay Crowder was there when they went to the finals. Then he left to go to Phoenix because Miami wouldn't pay him. And then now P.J. Tucker moved on for greener pastures. So he is he is his own replacement. Yeah, that's really it. Yeah, very strange things, though, happening in Phoenix. Uh, we have a little bit of time, very, very quick time to just go through this, but I did want to talk about a couple of players who are very impressive. I have to mention John Wall. Man, he was so out of the league. He was nowhere. Houston was keeping him like away from the team like Jay Crowder as well. People were wondering when he was going to play basketball again. He now has openly talked about how that affected his mental health. It had deteriorated to the point where he had thought about suicide. So the fact that we had some John Wall hooping, vintage John Wall, my Lord. He played so well, Charles Barkley openly speculated why one of about a dozen teams didn't find a way to make a deal for just him last year. He looked like the old John Wall, except for... 
This time, he plays defense. 15-4-3 with a steal. He was steady. He was getting such easy buckets, so calm, so under control, coming around screens, getting easy mid-ranges, getting very fast out into transition. Came back into the game after the Lakers made their huge run. Reggie Jackson was just getting cooked. He was with the B team. He made clutch jumper after clutch jumper. Kawhi gave him the ball. When does that happen? He played awesome defense. Laker guards, like I told you guys before, shot 4% from the field for a game that wasn't just because they're bad shooters. But Wall, Kawhi, PG look like a real dominant big three up there. If they can all increase their their minutes to like the high 20s, 30s, this team is going to be dangerous. Lastly, another player that I was super impressed with was Herb Jones. Love Herb Jones. So good. A lot of people are still learning about him. If you're a casual fan and you need a reminder, 6'7 forward who can guard one through five. Steadily improving his offense as well. He was drafted number 35 overall, not this last draft, but two drafts ago. And he is becoming maybe one of the best defensive players in the league. Like he could easily win defensive player of the year this year. That's how good he is. His first game in Brooklyn, his stat line you might not think is very good. 6-4-3 with one steal in 28 minutes. But let's look at how the Pelicans did when he was on the floor against Brooklyn's big three. He was a plus 34 for the game. The Pelicans outscored the Nets by 34 points in his 28 minutes, by far the highest plus minus in the game because he was locking down Every single person that he defended, he helped contribute to Ben Simmons fouling out in the 25 minutes. And when he was on the court, the Pell's net rating was 1.82. When he was on the bench, it was minus 1.98. The Pelicans don't need Herb Jones to score. They've got B.I. and Zion and Jose Alvarado and C.J. McCollum and just player Trey Murphy. So many trades. But he can be everywhere on defense. He can get into the paint, stop a man from rolling into the basket. He rotates over quickly to block the best scorer in the world in the corner three in two seconds flat. He's special. And when he was asked who he models his game after, who do you think? Maybe Kawhi? No. He says his defense and how he sees the game, he is trying to emulate safeties in the NFL. He said his two guys that he emulates are Ed Reed and Cam Chancellor. That was how he covers so much ground. I look at them, they're long, they cover a bunch of ground, so that's what I do on the basketball court. I I needed to figure out how they were able to read, react to plays, and I felt like if I could take pieces from their mentality, then I could roam around on the basketball court fairly easily. Holy shit. Yes, Herb Jones, he's he's not Paul George Stopper. He's not, you know, a longer... You know, defender of, of that we've seen in the NBA. He is the Ed Reed of the NBA. He is a ball-hawking monster, not afraid of contact, who can anticipate your next move before you do. He might be my new favorite player. I've got more to cover, but I have no time. So that's all the time that we have for the Heat Check. We'll be back Monday. I'll give you some of my early impressions from the players I already wrote about. Make sure you check out the feed for past episodes from the offseason and follow the Heat Check as we get you ready. For this new season, do not forget to download, subscribe, please tell your friends, and follow us. Follow us on social at at this heat check and at Trista Crick on TikTok. Hit that beat for me again, Nick.